0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome or welcome back to season three of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. The Logical Christian Podcast is not here to tell you what to think. It's an exercise in how to think. Rather than just accept what we're being told with regard to current events, politics, science, religion, and everything else, we're gonna stop the spin, ask questions, dive deep, and look at the world logically. And since logic is a gift from God, most importantly, we're gonna look at it all as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. You've likely heard something described as hidden in plain sight. This means that something is located in such a way that it's right in front of your face, but you still can't see it. This generally describes what happens as you're looking just everywhere in the refrigerator or in the pantry for a certain item, swear up and down it's not there, and then someone else comes by and puts his or her finger right upon it. Then the inevitable eye roll as you watch that individual turn and smugly walk away, flaunting their sense of ocular superiority. And as frustrating as that is, just imagine your frustration when you find out that this sort of thing is being done right in front of your eyes on a grand scale, at a national or even global level. Systems and organizations that have arrogantly and boldly, yet cleverly, placed their evil agenda right in front of our faces for decades or centuries, millennia even, all the while telling us that they're just innocently going about their business, no need to worry. And until recently, we've simply believed them, like fools. Thankfully, we have an increasing number of up-and-coming generations whose eyes are open, who are not just awake, but awoke. Yes, they have a complete understanding of what's really going on, and they're going to fix it, even if it destroys us. On today's episode, first we're going to finally fix science, then we're going to expose probably the most heinous, most despicable organization on the face of the planet, and finally we're moving the goal update inside the main body of the podcast, so that's something. So grab your lab coat, and heaven help you if it's white, and then set up the stake and build up the pyre. We're going to have some uh, some work to attend to shortly. Because make no mistake, sitting right in front of your face is here we go. You're never going to believe this. You're all familiar with physics, right? And Isaac Newton, the Apple guy? Not the Apple computer, iPod, iPad, iPhone guy. The guy who got hit in the head with an apple and voila, he invented gravity. That guy. You know how he also laid down the law about how motion works through his three universal principles of physics describing motion, Newton's first, second, and third laws, respectively? Yeah, well, uh, mis- mistakes have been made. <laughs> we-, we may never move the same again. So, for reference, the three laws very basically summarized are, ooh, or were, don't dun dun, dun Number one, the law of inertia. An object in motion tends to stay in motion unless an external force acts upon it. Similarly, if the object is at rest, it will remain at rest unless acted on by a force. And number two, the acceleration of an object is dependent on its mass and the force applied. This is the standard physics equation force equals mass times acceleration. Number three, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Basically, if you push on something, that something pushes back on you with the same force. Well, it turns out, found on sciencealert.com, headline, we've been misreading a major law of physics for the last 300 years. That's a lot of years to have just all of our motion screwed up. I mean, do we even know how to move at this point? So here's the problem Isaac Newton like some sort of elitist, wrote his works in Latin. I mean, come on, who reads or writes in Latin? If he had just used English like the rest of the entire free world, this catastrophe might not have even happened. Well, thankfully, Virginia Tech philosopher Daniel Hoke discovered what he called a, quote, clumsy mistranslation from the silly, silly Latin, the correct English. Based on this mistranslation, all those science-talking guys have told us about the law of inertia wrong for like 300 years. (laughs) I know, I'm as shocked and gobsmacked and flabbergasted as you are. It turns out forever we've been saying something like, quote, an object will continue moving in a straight line or remain at rest until an outside force intervenes. But that's wrong. That's very, very wrong. Turns out the word unless should have been translated as in so far. That would make this theory say, quote, an object will continue moving in a straight line or remain at rest in so far as an outside force intervenes. What does this mean? Well, it means that outside forces, whether that's gravity, wind resistance, or whatever else, is what causes the motion of objects, whether that's continuous velocity, straight line motion, or a change in direction or velocity. Now, what does this mean for us? Absolutely nothing. Hoke discovered this and wrote a paper about this in 2022, but apparently nobody cared. Uh, you know how science guys are, just just absolute jerks. Hoke, though, despite science ignoring him, understands the significance of this. Quote, by putting that one forgotten word, in so far, back in place, the scholars restored one of the fundamental principles of physics to its original splendor. However, he admits, quote, some find my reading too wild and unconventional to take seriously. Others think that it is so obviously correct that it is Barely worth arguing for. Now, I happen to be of the camp that just finds this way too wild and unconventional. I mean, how could you not find this wild? You know, as unconventional as it is, I guess, right? Now, but let's be honest. Science has way more important things to concern themselves with. Uh, Not just a single Latin word translated incorrectly. I mean, totally screwing up all motion for hundreds of years. Found on the Blaze.com headline... Physics for justice is woke ideology disguised as science. Now, as most of us know, the Blaze is one of those right-wing kooky websites, so they're probably going to be all cynical about the importance of social justice with regard to physics. But you and I know better. Science, facts, truth... I mean, they they literally mean nothing if we don't have equity, inclusion, diversity, and intersectionality at the proper proportions, which includes the exclusion of whitey and also men. The Blaze starts off with their typical snarky quip, quote, Are you decolonizing your paleobiology? Are you practicing a feminist glaciology? Have you considered a model that allows for gender fluidity among intersex giraffes and trans gazelles? <laughs> now, they scoff. But have you? Have you considered these things? These are important. Won't someone please think of the trans gazelles? Apparently, science at all levels, funded by the government, of course, is pushing past the bounds of what used to constitute science. You know, the quest for knowledge. And they're boldly stepping into what really matters. The National Science Foundation, for instance, is dumping cash into DEI, that's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Programs, because that's where science really comes from. Proper skin color, diverse pronouns, and as many genders, you know, the two real ones and then a seemingly infinite number of fake made-up ones, as possible, Now, this Blaze article has a ton of links with pages with other links, and it's a really good resource to find out exactly what's happening in the world of science to fix the problems of the past. We're not going to go into all of that. You can thank me later. But let's look at a few of the things they mention. The article starts with a link to, um, I guess, a scientific paper and a related chart discussing, quote, ocean equity and justice. Apparently, the way that science has approached oceanography in the past is very unequitable. Inequitable? Not equitable. And it's unjust, and it comes from a colonizer mindset or something. I'll be honest. Trying to understand the woke social justice movement is like trying to nail jello to the wall. It's it's just literally impossible. The rules of the game keep changing. The, the players keep changing. The The desired results and the appropriate actions keep changing, and the entire system runs on outrage. So if you break down the arguments into component parts, like men tend to like to do, you know, tackle one problem at a time, kill it, move to the next. Well, for every supposed social justice heartache you kill, three more pop up in its place. We can never win because there is literally no way to win this game. My job as a reliability engineer is to eliminate my job If I were able to do my job perfectly, I'd put myself out of my job. Luckily, because of humans and machines and my imperfections, that will never happen. Conversely, the industry of woke has the goal of always having a job. So they'll come for the low-hanging fruit. You know, white, male, patriarchy. Then they'll continue branching out, eventually eating some of their own if needed. This is what we see in the LGBTQ Whatever. The T the, the no longer plays nicely with the LGB or the Q because the T wants preeminence in all they do. see, they used the others as a carrier until they could self-sustain. And well, now they're well on their way to having an adversarial relationship and just going it alone. There's always another boogeyman, another oppressor around every corner. Anyway, regarding ocean justice or whatever, this scientific paper, for lack of a better term, is entitled Towards Equity and Justice in Ocean Sciences. Now, you and I might have mistakenly thought in the before times that scientists that wanted to study the ocean, you know, could do so and and good for them. More power to them, in fact, and we wish them well. Now, these scientists, which is a Non-gendered, non-ethnic, non-racial, non-color terms. scientists, well, they would just do their thing, and then they would come back to the rest of us, mouth-breathers, with their findings. And that's apparently not what's been going on. I, th- I thought it was apparently not. The abstract of this paper starts, quote, The global scientific community is currently going through a self-reckoning in which it is questioning and re-examining its existing practices, many of which are based on colonial and neo-colonial perceptions. This is particularly acute for the ocean research community, where unequal and unbalanced international collaborations have been rife. Consequently, numerous discussions and calls have been made to change the current status quo by developing guidelines and frameworks addressing the key issues plaguing our community. So what is this saying? Literally nothing. In fact, I'd argue that the mistranslated Latin in Newton's Law has more importance than this entire paper. The problem is that people aren't ignoring this. This is being heralded as necessary to our survival as a species. They start the paper with, quote... Globally, there are growing calls for the scientific community to dismantle and reform its business-as-usual practices based on unbalanced and unequal international partnerships between researchers from high-income economies in the global north and low-to-middle-income economies in the global south. This colonial model of research perpetuates and widens inequalities, provides little to no tangible benefit to researchers from under-resourced countries, and often overlaps with and impacts locally led efforts. This is prevalent in ocean science where international collaborations are the norm given the expensive and complex nature of operations, the connected nature of our oceans, and the global threats of, for example, climate change, pollution, transnational fisheries they face today. Ignoring social inequities in conservation can result in social harms, but also undermines local expertise, thereby hindering the potential For conservation success. And I would have to say, really? What this paper seems to be arguing is that because countries that have the expertise, the equipment, the educated individuals, and the money to run and lead scientific expeditions and experimentation, they're taking the lead on ocean science. And because of this, we're disenfranchising the locals, and that means we're not doing science well or well enough. Good. Goodly. So they're telling me that scientists aren't engaging the local expertise as necessary in order to get as complete a picture as possible, I think. I find that hard to believe, or or maybe they're implying that we need to stop with the rich countries thinking they can just, you know, do science in poor areas. We need to let the poor countries do their own science, because that seems... I don't know, ridiculous. They also seem to be implying that the poorer countries aren't benefiting from us colonial ocean people doing science. And I'd like to point out, Your Honor, that it's because of the wealthier industrialized nations that many of these third world countries have been pulled up out of abject poverty and disease and starvation. This sounds to me like the two competing economic theories— That promoted by the right of a top-down economy, where the rich create the businesses and fund the research, invest in the equipment and inventions, etc., etc., which then allows profits to trickle down to the rest of us, whichever rung of the ladder we all fall upon. Or that promoted by the left, the bottom-up theory that it's the blue-collar, hands-in-the-dirt guy that makes business possible. The reality is that both groups need each other. But if there isn't money to start businesses, the business doesn't just start magically on its own. Now, will the owner, the CEO, the leadership, will they get rich? I sure hope so. If they're getting rich, the company is doing well. And we all benefit first by having jobs. Second, hopefully, by some sharing in the profits through bonuses or raises or actual profit sharing. But that's not how we're supposed to view things. See, the woke ideology is that the rich are evil. The person at the bottom of the ladder should be paid the same as the CEO, etc., etc. This is why Barbara Lee in California suggested that there should be a $50 minimum wage, at least for California, because it's just too expensive to live out there. Well, that means a 16-year-old starting McDonald's would make about $96,000 a year. The problem is that there wouldn't be any 16-year-old jobs anymore. There would be a lot less jobs, in fact, as automation is to the point today where we can feasibly replace a whole lot of humans if we really want to. And at that price, it would be economically responsible to do so. And in order to cover the costs of those still employed, the cost of everything would go up. So, at best, no ground is gained, and realistically, a lot of ground is lost, badly lost. But let's go back to our Ocean Justice. They have assembled a nice table of information entitled, quote, An Overview of Recent Literature Around Ocean Equity and Justice Organized Across Five Themes and Further Subdivisions or Issues Therein. I just want to give you a feel for this chart. The first column is the parent theme or the main problem. The second column has the issues within the theme. The rest of the chart we're not really concerned with, but it gives recommended reading and the recommended actions to be taken by various stakeholders to address the issues, to fix the main problems. But for our purposes, what exactly are the issues they're purporting to find with ocean equity and justice? Theme one Reshaping education, perceptions, attitudes, and working environments. The issues in theme one are anti racist interventions, be inclusive of LGBTQIA researchers, eradicate gender discrimination, and ensure safe working practices. Now, out of those, I absolutely agree. Safety is important. Can anyone tell me how the other issues make one bit of difference with regard to ocean science? Do we not understand the ocean if we don't have an LGBTQIA plus individual analyzing the water? I mean, the gays have a different way of viewing the water from the non-gays. Theme 2. Rebalancing Partnerships and Collaborations. The issues in Theme 2 are co-development and co-production of scientific projects and respect for indigenous and local knowledge. I mean, this is fine... But do we really have some ocean science gap here that's giving us faulty science that the locals and or indigenouses need to fill? Theme three, science analysis and publication. The issues in theme three are consider non-English languages, diversity of literature cited, inclusive authorships, and make research visible and discoverable. Shouldn't we just want the best people to do the research and author the papers while using the best sources available? When we start driving diversity quotas into things, that's how we fail. And although there's no data that I know of to prove it conclusively yet, I believe that we're starting to see the results of DEI quotas popping up rather than just, you know, hiring the best person for the job. Maybe eventually we'll talk about that, but think of the number of data points regarding air travel we're seeming to accumulate here after the FAA started implementing DEI requirements. Yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of close calls in the skies and on the airports. Not conclusive, but data points. Theme four, strengthening capacity. The issues in theme four are invest in human capacity and invest in infrastructure capacity, including low-cost technology options. And I'll be honest, I would kind of think this was already being done to varying degrees. Those seem to make very good sense to me. Except that by human capacity, they're talking about diverse and inclusive human capacity. You know, not just human capacity, the right kind of humans. And theme five, networking and public engagement. The issues in theme five are widen participation of networking and scientific dissemination opportunities and decolonize the ocean narrative slash local ocean champions. Now, this comes down to pumping money into poorer countries so they can participate as well as ensuring the underrepresented groups are included in all of this ocean stuff. And why? Well, because we... And let's just call an albino spade an albino spade here. We rich, white, European-based countries, we're a bunch of colonizers, just colonizing the oceans, literally stealing the oceans from the lesser nations, like the white devils we are. Now, from this list, from the issues they listed, if these were all addressed per their recommended actions, which we didn't discuss, how many of these would actually do something, do anything, to improve the science? Now... Honestly, maybe a couple. But what ensuring a diversity quota is met, whether that's race, gender, economic, etc., is that how we get better results in science? See, they're operating under the false assumption that if we don't have representation in all of the categories of intersectionality, then we're obviously not getting the complete picture. And although I think we can all agree that makes perfect sense, I'm sorry, well, not really, but that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Let's boil this down to something very basic. You bring your car to a mechanic. It's making a noise every time I do this. Can you figure out what's going on and fix it? Now, do you care what the mechanic looks like? If your answer is yes, you're a racist. Do you care what gender your mechanic is? If your answer is yes, well, you're a sexist. Do you care if your mechanic is of the LGBTQQIA2 plus variety? If yes, well, you're then... They call them homo or a transphobe, although you're likely not scared of them, but homocyst or transcyst. Now that just doesn't sound as good, but you're one of those things. The only thing you should really care about is can this individual diagnose the problem and fix it and do it in a reasonable amount of time for a reasonable price? In other words, you want a good mechanic. Now inside the DEI shop, as you wait in the lobby with the TV blaring in your ear, we happen onto the DEI scene of DEI car diagnosis. You probably don't have a white guy in the mix unless he's doing some menial task or. They're just for comic relief. That's as penance for being a colonizer for just centuries. But you should have an indigenous American since we stole their land. I mean, they have the right to be there or something. I'm not sure. You should probably have a woman of color. You should have a transgender person. We don't want to discriminate against the blind, do we? And don't even try to limit them by telling them they can't take your car for a good diagnostic test drive you ableist. You'll probably want a black man, or at least a man of some color. Maybe don't double up on black since, you know, you've already ticked the box with a woman. I don't know. You'll definitely want an illegal alien in the mix because he or she or they is just trying to support a family. We can ignore the Asians. They're practically as insufferable as whitey at this point, but we'll need to have all those other groups, maybe more, represented in order to diagnose the issue. If we want to do it correctly and empathetically, because there's no way they could ever come to a correct conclusion unless just everyone is represented. Not that they aren't all super capable individually. That's not what I'm saying. Just that they look, I don't know. But that's who's in the shop working on your car. So rest easy. Not only might you get a car back that's fixed, although that's not really what's important here, you've supported social justice and really What's more important, your car running or feelings? Now, does that make any sense? And yes, that scenario actually makes perfect sense in the woke world. And although this is a recent phenomenon, it's not entirely new. From August 2021, found on NAS.org, that's the National Association of Scholars for you plebes, headline, Fermilab Concedes to Woke Physicists. Now, this is the big particle accelerator lab in Illinois. All they're doing is blasting atoms super fast around a particle accelerator racetrack in opposite directions, then just smashing them into each other. I think with the point being to get an adrenaline high as they tempt the atom gods to blow up half of our planet. I'm really not sure. But what we know for sure is that they need to stop being so racist. Apparently, an organization called Change Now presented them with a 17-page list of demands to curb the anti-black, white supremacist racism that's running rampant at Fermilab. The ultimate goal of Change Now was to have a Fermilab that, going forward, would, quote, prioritize humanity over productivity. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> Now, a black physicist who worked at Fermilab from 1971 to 2019, ironically named Herman White, basically said that this assertion was bunk, although the black Mr. White did not use such strong language. So Change Now wanted some minor changes, such as paying black scientists for doing voluntary social justice work. If it's voluntary... Why would you be... Never mind. They want government-funded activism. They wanted at least 15% of these scientific and leadership positions to be filled by black people within three years. They didn't say if it mattered if they were the best for the job or, or even qualified for the job, but you know, and I know that, that no, that, that, that's, that's silly, it really doesn't matter. Only the skin color matters. Oh, and, and one caveat, they can't all be, quote, cis-hetero black men because i mean just uh ew as of the time of this article they were sitting somewhere in the 1 to 2% black scientist range so quite literally the only way they could do this is to just hire disregarding qualifications and can we just take a moment to understand that hiring based on skin color genitals preferred pronouns or the genitals they prefer for their partner to have or or partners who might <laughs> judge is grossly illegal in this country yeah, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, you know, the EEOC, seems to think that hiring based on those types of qualifications is just massively against the law. Well, during the 2020 riots, Lab apparently told their employees to reject racism and lack of inclusion, and that the full spectrum of views on these matters existed inside the lab, so just be respectful of each other and keep things thoughtful and constructive, then, of course, Change Now said that that was, quote, racist, insensitive, and harmful because, well, because they're stupid race baiters that make their living by promoting hatred and division. They further said that the existence of white supremacy within institutions and communities is as much of an indisputable fact as gravity. So uh, so that's who they are, just a, just a bunch of angry people profiting off of claims of racism while being racist themselves. But the director of Lab decided to start the process of playing black catch-up. He promptly promoted four black employees who were members of Change Now. One of them, Brian Nord, identified as the most vocal of the Change Now group, received tenure—that's nice—and was placed as the lead for a renewed push for diversity. Nord, however, was hip to the director's jive, quote, It sets me up as the point of failure. Come on, what do you want? He's like a cat. Sit there and scream and scratch at the door. You open the door and he walks the other way. Make up your mind. (sighs) But Fermilab was undeterred. They announced a new fellowship, quote, open to black and African-American postdocs which is racist and discriminatory, but it's okay because it's discriminating against non-blacks, and that's what's important. And they created a new position for Chief Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Officer. So that's also nice. Change Now had seven basic areas of demands for Fermilab, just little things. They're totally not racist at all. They just just want a few little things here. First, employment security and agency for all black scientists. Uh, Second, hire black people with an intersectional lens. Uh, Third, restructure leadership and decision-making entities. Fourth, commit to accountability and transparency. Fifth, education and training. Sixth, invest in black communities. And seventh, make commitments and accountability public. And Fermilab appears to be working toward the goals that they were handed by this race-baiting, racist, hate-fueled group. So I'm sure that, uh, you know, running one of the largest colliders in the world will be much safer and productive and better once they get their representation and intersectionality figured out and not end up as a smoking crater in Illinois. Although, to be honest, it is right outside of Chicago. So, I mean, if it did go up and it took out Chicago would it really be all that bad? I mean, Illinois would flip to a red state overnight with regard to elections. So, I mean, there's that. Look, I could go on for hours on this. DEI is being pushed everywhere, in every employment field, in every institution. Nearly every larger corporation, at least, has some form of diversity and inclusion department in order to make decisions racistly, which I said is completely illegal unless it's the right kind of racism. The entire issue is obviously, as we've discussed before, based on the lies of the unprovable, fantastical, and frankly stupid theory of evolution. The idea that there are different races within humanity is the core issue that's caused this absolute ridiculousness. No need to delve into that topic again. We've tackled that topic before. I'm sure we will again in the future. But what else are we seeing here? When you start to peel back the layers, we see sin on top of sin on top of sin, because we've simply relegated God to the inside of some church buildings, and that's where that magical, mythical sky God needs to stay. And by doing that, we've essentially set out on our own, trying to manage everything based on our own wisdom, and proclaiming themselves to be wise, they became fools. Just saying. So what do we see? Well, let's start with vengeance, shall we? We all know that the white American Europeans are the only people group that have ever enslaved and or oppressed another people group. So you can understand why that other people group, the African Americans, or really at this point, any American with darker than white skin, feels the need to enact revenge upon whitey. Or that's not true at all. This is where the mandatory caveat comes in, something like, I'm not trying to minimize slavery, which I'm not. But the reality is, as bad as slavery was, this wasn't the first time a people enslaved another people. This wasn't the first or the worst of the oppression of one people over another people. It was despicable, but it also ended 160 years ago. At best, there are multiple generations between the last slave or slaveholder and us. But because of certain entities that must keep the wound of anger and division open and raw, you know, for financial gain, for political power, someone from the outside might actually think that slavery ended just the other day. And because of this open wound not being allowed to close and heal, somehow people of today, not affected in the least by slavery, want revenge on people of today that had nothing to do with slavery. And I say not affected, but the reality is they are affected. Because of what their ancestors endured, generations have grown up in arguably the greatest country, the most diverse country, the most free country, and the country with the greatest opportunity in the history of the world. But we're not supposed to say that. People get mad when you point that out. And let me add this. Believing in an all-sovereign God means that God uses the sin of man sinlessly for his glory. Slavery wasn't a mistake. How could he say that? It wasn't a surprise. It was part of the ultimate plan from before time. Evil, yes, from our human vantage point, but what man meant for evil, Yahweh meant for good. But if you don't believe in God anymore, or you don't believe in a sovereign God, if you have your ideas about evil, omnipotence, omniscience, God's ultimate plan, God's immutable will screwed up, which I'd argue a massive percentage of humanity, Christian and non-Christian do, well, you end up viewing slavery or any adversity, large or small, as something God was powerless over. Put everything we just covered together, and you easily get to revenge. Unfortunately, as God told the Israelites very early on, vengeance is mine and retribution. He also said that they, and by extension we, should not take vengeance. Vengeance is God's realm, not ours. Psalm 58, one of the imprecatory psalms, a fancy word for a psalm of calling God to curse or destroy the subject of the psalm, Written by David, minces no words about this. Quote, "...do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge with equity, O sons of men? No. In heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you prepare a path for the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak falsehood wander in error from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful caster of spells." O God, shatter their teeth and their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions. O Yahweh, let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriages of a woman which never behold the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind, the living and the burning alike. The righteous will be glad when he beholds the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. God washing his feet in the blood of the wicked. It sure seems like David was relying on God to enact vengeance where and when and how it needed to be done on exactly who it needed to be enacted upon. But if we're disconnected from God, we've made it our job to take revenge. And one thing we're not good at, it's playing God. And, of course, revenge is the desire because forgiveness of the past has never occurred and will never occur as long as we have evil people that are allowed to speak into and inflame the situation. And that's your second layer of sin. We're commanded to forgive. We're told by Jesus right after he taught his disciples how to pray, quote, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. We should find it interesting that out of what we have termed the Lord's Prayer, which Jesus just got done with, Jesus specifically highlighted forgiveness. He could have highlighted any of the main points in that prayer, but he highlighted forgiveness. We aren't asked to forgive. It wasn't a suggestion. It's a commandment with a promise or a curse attached. Not forgiving others is a sin. But we can't forgive because we've lost that love and feeling. Whoa, whoa, that love and feeling. Okay, look, love is not a feeling, or at least not entirely. Jesus told his disciples when they asked him about signs of the end, one of the things that will be seen in the last days, which we've been in ever since Jesus ascended into heaven, was that because lawlessness is multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. And isn't that what we see? And it's coming from all of us. I'm not immune to this. I'd like to think that I have a righteous, justifiable anger that because of my love of others and the topic that my anger is justified. And in some cases, I do believe that to be the case. Those involved with mutilating children for an ideology or an agenda, I believe, should be very publicly executed. Cleanse the camp of the evil, in essence. But I know that I don't extend love to people that I should— like the guy that almost sideswiped me and cut me off in traffic today. I could have let him over, but as he casually cruised up next to me, after passing a mile's worth of signage, clearly stating that the left lane was going to end, well, I'm glad he had good brakes, because he had to slow down awful quick and fast, and in a hurry. And no, I'm not kidding. (laughs) That actually happened today. Did I show him love? No, I didn't. Was I wrong? Well, not legally, but yes, I, I probably was. See, our love for humanity is cold and stale. Our hearts are stony and stubborn. And for those who don't have God, don't have Christ, they don't have love at all. They have a love for self, a love of money, a love of power. So they grab onto whatever outrage they can and foment hatred and division where forgiveness of wrongs is hard or nearly impossible, at least a man's strength, and they use that to push an agenda of get them. So how do we start this segment with woke and end with racism? Well, because the world of woke, specifically the LGBTQIA2 community, has glommed onto the civil rights movement. Somehow. And somehow they're making the claim that they are, or were, or something, just as oppressed as blacks are today and as slaves were a couple centuries ago. And I have no idea how they made that claim stick. It's not the same at all. But this is why affirmative action and similar programs have morphed into DEI. And now we're seeing the LGB XYZ community push out the blacks. And we're seeing the T's try to claim king of the mountain against the LGBQQIA2+. pluses. The key, as we know, really boils down to love. Love doesn't mean affirmation. doesn't mean capitulation. Love, depending on the topic, will mean the opposite, in fact. Speaking hard truths, being honest, not with the intention to hurt, but with the intention to save. But whatever the case, we're told that without love, we're an empty shell, basically. I, I know I've said this before. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. My take on that is not the take that any biblical scholar or a theologian would ascribe to. I, I know. But I see it as a progression. If you don't have hope, if you live in a hopeless existence, how can you find the energy, the the, the willpower, the emotional fortitude it takes to love, to truly love others? And where can you find your hope unless you have faith? Even faith in a frail humanity brings flashes of hope. An imperfect, blurry copy of the true thing, admittedly, but a flash of hope. Faith in a false religion brings even more blurry hope. But if you want true hope, well, that can only be found in the God-man, Jesus Christ, Faith in Christ brings hope in all things. Hope in this life completely changes your perspective and allows you to feel compassion, empathy, and the greatest of all, love for humanity. And these days, that's what we need for humanity. And that's what humanity really needs from us. And boy, is it not easy. So I'll make a deal with you. If you pray for me, for my stony, stubborn heart to be softened so I can more easily, more Christ-like love my fellow human... I'll pray for you for the same. In fact, right before I recorded this, I put you on my prayer list. Deal? Great. What exactly is Christianity? The early Christians were simply called followers of the way. In Acts 11, Barnabas was seeking for Saul, or as we generally know him, Paul, eventually making his way to Tarsus, where he found him, and then took him to Antioch. And This is the first time we hear followers of the way being called Christians. And the best information we have is that this term was used by the Gentiles as more of an insult. The Greek word christianos, which only appears three times in the Bible, literally means follower of Christ. So, in Acts 11, we see that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. In Acts 26, we see Paul's defense against King Agrippa, and Agrippa said, per the KJV, quote, "...almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian." Almost. I mean, how sad is that? And that's the last we hear of Agrippa in the Bible. And then in 1 Peter 4, we read, quote, "...yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf." Those are the three times that the word is used. Remember, a Christ follower. That's literally the definition. Now, between about 30 AD and 1517 AD, the followers lost the way. The small-c Catholic Church, which simply means universal church, was, uh, was a mess. The Bible was written in Latin, the common man could only look to the Pope and his popery to be told what Christianity was, because they couldn't read the Bible, and because copying the Bible was such an arduous task, not just anyone had one. Although some early martyrs had tried to reform the Church, which is why we know them as martyrs today, Luther was finally the one who broke through. Despite his desire to actually fix the Church, the Catholic powers that be weren't interested in Reformation. They were interested in power and money and control. So the way was split into two ways. Now you had the large C Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Now Luther was warned that if he made the Bible available for just anyone to read, there would be an endless number of interpretations and versions of the religion. I can't remember who that was that warned him. It was maybe Erasmus or Eck or Tetzel. I don't remember. But whoever it was... He was absolutely right, and Luther agreed that that may be a possibility, but it would be much better to take the chance and allow all mankind the opportunity to read the Bible rather than hide it and take the chance of it being further perverted, and Luther was absolutely right. But today, as feared, there are so many denominations and synods and conferences and whatevers inside of all of those denominations, as well as the non-denoms and fringe groups of like Seventh-day Adventists and the Amish, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as well as cults such as the Mormons and the JWs and so on. And all of them, from Catholic to Mormon, are under the broad umbrella of Christian And now, evangelical Christians, Bible-believing, born-again Christians, are having to defend against this boogeyman of Christian nationalism. And does anyone even know what that term means? Well, Pew Research did a survey toward the end of 2022, so after all of the recent media coverage, so this is a little bit dated, but at that time, 54% had no idea what Christian nationalism was. For those who had at least, I don't know, a little bit of an idea of Christian nationalism, they were asked to give a brief summary of what it was in their own words. Responses included the following. A Catholic said, quote, the nation and its laws should follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. A not born again Protestant, and I'm not sure exactly how that works, but that comes up over and over again. Anyways, one of those said, quote, just a buzzword for the dirty and corrupt Democrats to use to further the division. Another not-born-again Protestant said, quote, agreeing that this country was established with Christian beliefs at its core and has drifted toward allowing immoral conduct being protected and supported, a movement to help correct that. A religious nun said, quote, USA governance and policies should be controlled and dictated by evangelicals using evangelical biblical interpretation, typically an overt or covert racist, misogynistic, antiquarian worldview. A not born again Protestant said, quote, religious people who love their country. A Catholic said, quote, people who love God and USA. A born-again evangelical said, quote, violently forcing Christian values into the social and political sphere, incorrectly believing that America is God's chosen nation. And responses were just everywhere, from not accepting other religions, or literally being traitorous to the country, to just people that love God and love the country, and the desire for maybe Christian principles, as our country was founded on, to be followed again. I'm not sure what a not-born-again Protestant is. That's an interesting designation. I'm amazed at the vitriol against Christianity by some of those professing to be born-again Protestants or evangelicals, one particularly angry religious nun, and this is N-O-N-E, nun, over the age of 65 stated this, quote, it's a view held primarily by straight, white, Christian males that the U.S. should be RULED, all caps, as opposed to being GOVERNED all caps, according to their interpretation of the Bible, and therefore that women, members of the LGBTQ community, practitioners of other faiths, and people of other races and ethnicities, etc., are inferior beings and should be subjugated and controlled as such. Wow. So, what is it? Well, clearly people don't know. In fact, I'll be honest, I I don't know. I'm a person that loves this country— I want our country to adhere to the principles, ethics, and morals of Christianity. I'm a born-again Protestant, but I don't believe this country should be ruled as a theocracy. Does that make me a Christian nationalist? Do I get a bunk bed at one of the camps? Britannica, the online encyclopedia now, says this, quote, ideology that seeks to create or maintain a legal fusion of Christian religion with a nation's character. Advocates of Christian nationalism consider their view of Christianity to be an integral part of their country's identity and want the government to promote or even enforce the religion's position within it. But then they go on to say, quote, Given the diversity of Christian beliefs worldwide, it comes as no surprise that there is no established set of beliefs among Christian nationalists as to the extent to which the state should support Christianity. So it sounds like, um... Well, yes, I'm definitely maybe a possible Christian nationalist, perhaps. Now, Wikipedia defines it, at least in part, as, quote, "...primarily focuses on the internal politics of society, such as legislating civil and criminal laws that reflect their view of Christianity and the role of religion in political and social life." Christian nationalism supports the presence of Christian symbols in the public square and state patronage for the practice and display of religion, such as Christmas as a national holiday, school prayer, the exhibition of nativity scenes during Christmastide, and the Christian cross on Good Friday. Christian nationalism draws political support from the broader Christian right, but not exclusively given the broad support for observing Christmas as a national holiday in many countries. Okay, well I I like Christmas so I I'm almost definitely a Christian nationalist. I have no problem with pretty much any of that to be honest. Although again, I don't think it should be forced nationally. It should be a decision made at the state or the local level. So maybe I'm a maybe I'm a Christian statist and somehow that sounds worse. So never mind that. One more, according to Christianity today, quote Christian nationalism is the belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take active steps to keep it that way. Popularly, Christian nationalists assert that America is and must remain a Christian nation, not merely as an observation about American history, but as a prescriptive program for what America must continue to be in the future— Scholars, like Samuel Huntington, have made a similar argument that America is defined by its Anglo-Protestant past and that we will lose our identity and our freedom if we do not preserve our cultural inheritance. Okay, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that I agree with that exactly. I... I don't disagree exactly, but this seems like it might be going maybe a step too far for me. But then they go on to say, quote, Christian nationalists do not reject the First Amendment and do not advocate for theocracy but they do believe that Christianity should enjoy a privileged position in the public square. The term Christian nationalism is relatively new, and its advocates generally do not use it of themselves, but it accurately describes American nationalists who believe American identity is inextricable from Christianity. And now I'm back to not sure again. And I think this is right where those who are militant anti-Christians want this definition to stay as a very kind of fuzzy, blurry, non-pinned-downable definition. By making this as unclear as possible, it allows anyone who hates Christianity, anyone who hates conservatism, to call anyone who claims Christianity and resides on the right side of the political spectrum a Christian nationalist. In fact, found on MSNBC.com from December 2022, just a few months after the very obvious confusion found in the Pew Research Poll, headline, The Major Role of Christian Nationalism, on January 6th, of course. At a House Oversight Committee meeting on political extremism, Amanda Tyler, the Executive Director of Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, said, quote, Christian nationalism is a political ideology and cultural framework that seeks to fuse American and Christian identities. It suggests that real Americans are Christians and that true Christians hold a particular set of political beliefs. And it helped fuel the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, uniting disparate actors and infusing their political cause with religious fervor. Okay, so she's useless. Sorry, that's mean. She's a clueless lefty. The article is mostly a pointless Christian bash fest, to be honest, saying that if you believe the election was stolen, you're an extremist, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, they state that the text messages between Representative Rick Allen of Georgia, a <clears throat> Republican, and White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, quote, dramatically show how deeply Christian nationalist ideology runs through the Republican Party and how it continues to underlie Republicans' ongoing denial that January 6 was a violent attempt to overthrow the government. In one of the absolutely damning texts from Allen, he thumbed, quote, tell the president to hang in there. So many are praying for God's revelation and a miracle. And how dare he? Praying? To God for a miracle? What an absolute monster this man is. And let me just interject here for a second before I crawl out of my skin. If those on the right wanted to overthrow the government, we would have. There's no question. No, we don't own cannons. Well, at least most of us don't. And we don't own F-16s or whatever else Biden babbles about. But we own a lot of pew sticks and a whole lot of freedom seeds. What nobody seems to be able to understand is that if we on the right intended to violently overthrow the government, why didn't anyone have any weapons at all? There are only two logical conclusions for this. One... This wasn't an attempt at an insurrection, it was at best maybe a riot, I'd say more of a demonstration that got out of hand in certain spots, or two, we on the right are the dumbest insurrectionists in the history of insurrections. Now I'm going to go with the first option, and now let's get back on topic. They continue to rail on Representative Allen for believing that God is on our side, that we're in a spiritual war, and that this is God's battle, and the like, quote, Allen was invoking a core element of Christian right-wing ideology that patriotic Christians are engaged in a spiritual battle with evil forces, which include the Democratic Party, the left more broadly, or any other political adversary they say undermine America as a Christian nation. They claim Trump was anointed by God to save the Christian nation from attacks by its enemies. Okay. Okay. I actually agree with all of that until the Trump part, and it's not a bad thing. It's a religious ideology, and yes, I believe Democrats are evil. I don't think you can be a Christian and a Democrat. Not anymore. One of those two things can be true, or neither of them can be true, but I see no way anymore that both can be true. Now, regarding Trump, I know for a fact that Trump was placed as president by God from before creation, because if he wasn't placed by God... He wouldn't have been president. But because I believe in a sovereign God, I believe the exact same thing about Biden. I believe, however, they were placed there for different purposes per God's plan. Was Trump anointed by God to save the Christian nation from attacks by its enemies? I don't think I'd go that far. He was placed as president for God's purposes. That we know for sure. We could speculate as to what that is or what those are, but I don't think it does us any good to go down that road very far. That said, even if there are Christians who do believe that, does that make them nationalists knowing the negative context that's meant by using that term? And no, it doesn't. Let's be clear. It's not really the nationalists they're worried about, although these people do hate the country, at least the country as it was designed by the founding fathers. No, it's not really the nationalists, though. It's Christians. That's who they really can't stand. Now, that said, found on RealClearPolitics.com, headline, Heidi Prisboa, colon, extremist conservative Christian nationalists believe your rights come from God, not from government. So MSNBC had a A guest recently, an investigative reporter from Politico named Heidi Prisbila. Look, lady, I know that they say and sometimes why, but come on, buy a vowel somewhere. Anyway, Heidi was on MSNBC a few nights ago and was apparently pegged as being an expert on Christianity. Spoiler alert, uh, she's not really. The premise she was fed was that Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, was infusing a Christian nationalism into the House. And this is where the trouble began. She said, quote, I talked with a lot of experts on this, and I have seen it with my reporting. The base of the Republican Party has shifted. Remember when Trump ran in 2016? A lot of the mainline evangelicals wanted nothing to do with the divorced real estate mogul who cheated on his wife with a porn star and all of that. So what happened was that he was surrounded by this more extremist element. We are going to hear words like Christian nationalism, like the new apostolic reformation. These are groups that you should get very schooled on because they have a lot of power in Trump circles. And the one thing that unites all of them, because there's many different groups orbiting Trump, but the one thing that unites them is Christian nationalists, not Christians, because Christian nationalists are very different is that they believe that our rights as Americans and as all human beings do not come from any earthly authority. They don't come from Congress, from the Supreme Court. They come from God. The problem with that is that they are determining. Men are determining what God is telling them. In the past, that so-called natural law, it is a pillar of Catholicism. For instance, it has been used for good in social justice campaigns. Martin Luther King evoked it in talking about civil rights. But now you have an extremist element of conservative Christians who say that this applies specifically to issues including abortion, gay marriage. And it is going much further than that. As you see, for instance, with the ruling in Alabama this week that judges connected to the Dominionist faction and talking about a lot of other issues, including surrogacy, IVF, sex education in schools. There's a lot in addition. <clears throat> okay. Okay. Let me try to unravel some of this. First, she's right. The evangelical world was not big on Trump. He did claim to be a Christian, but then he said he's never had to ask for forgiveness. Well, then Donald, you're not a Christian. And you can tell by the way he talks, by the way he acts, that he's likely not a Christian. That said, and I've said this many times before, I don't require my president or governor or senator or school board member To be a Christian. We're not a theocracy and we shouldn't strive to be one until Jesus returns because man has always screwed those up. Now, after Trump got in office and started pushing conservative causes, suddenly he was anointed by God. And no, we Christians should never make a shift like that. Trump has some major problems. I am a far-right Christian conservative. If Trump is our nominee, and as of right now it really appears he will be, I'll vote for him. But that doesn't mean I like him. I don't. But Christians have almost placed him at the right hand of Jesus on the throne. And I don't get it. She also mentioned the New Apostolic Reformation, or NAR, and Dominionist Christians. Again, she's right. The NAR has a Dominion Theology. This is also found in the Charismatic and Pentecostal flavors of Christianity. They have something called the Seven Mountain Mandate. The theory is that there are seven key sectors of society, the Seven Mountains. Once Christians have conquered or taken dominion of all of these Seven Mountains, peace will then exist on the earth, Christian morals will reign, and that will usher in the peaceful return of Jesus. As such... Those who hold this errant theology believe they must take dominion over education, religion, family, business, government and military, arts and entertainment, and media. Now, I'll be honest, I'm not really sure about my eschatology, my thoughts on how the end times will all play out. Not anymore. I used to be, but not anymore. But I can't see anywhere that says we're to bring peace on the earth and then Jesus will come in and rule once we get our job done. But these people believe this. And as such, they absolutely want to use the power of the president to help them infiltrate society and conquer these mountains. What Heidi is missing is that Trump isn't a Christian. And I highly doubt Trump is a dominionist. I mean, he was literally the most pro-homosexual president we've ever had one of his close friends is probably still is a close friend a cross dresser bruce jenner however many maybe most of the so-called christians that surrounded trump were of the charismatic nar false teacher wolf class pseudo christian variety people like paula white who's nothing but a health wealth prosperity charlatan Kat Kerr, a little old lady who claims daily or weekly trips to heaven and back, fashions herself to be a prophetess, and is just all around nuts. Greg Locke, another NAR-style wolf. Jeremiah Johnson, another self-proclaimed prophet that would have been stoned back in the Old Testament days. Michael Brown, a charismatic nut. Lana Voiser, another so-called prophetess. Kenny and Gloria Copeland, another wolf couple. And I'm fairly certain he's possessed by at least one, probably more demons. And I'm not joking about that. Look at his eyes. Jerry Falwell Jr., and we know how well that turned out. Jensen Franklin, another self-proclaimed prophet. Robert Morris, a prosperity preacher. And so many more. He had a few good guys in there. David Jeremiah, James Dobson. But they were far outweighed by the massive number of charlatans, wolves, hucksters, false prophets, and charismatic NAR whack jobs. So Heidi wasn't all wrong. What she's got wrong, and I have no idea how she arrived at this, is that Christians, true Christians, apparently realize that rights come from government, not God. Except that, no, true Christians better not think that, or we've got bigger problems. Our earthly authority is government. We get that. But our ultimate authority is God. Everything we are or have comes from God, including our rights. We are literally the created, the pot. He is the creator or the potter. He owns humanity because he made us, and he owns Christians because the blood of his son bought and paid for us. As such, although we are under obligation to obey the earthly authority, we are absolutely not to do what God forbids, nor to neglect what God commands. I think of churches being deemed as non-essential in the last few years. Mm-mm, no, not according to God. Most Christians had no problem taking a few weeks, a, a month to see what exactly was, you know, what was going to go on with this virus. I had no problem with that. No need to take some dangerous risks. But after a few weeks, churches started to slowly fill back in and they should have done so. No earthly authority has the right to tell the bride of Christ they can't meet as commanded in his word. But see, what's happening here is that Heidi and the media, the politicians, the population in general, is doing exactly what I said they would do. They just group everyone who has even a dashed line to Christianity under the umbrella of Christian. Now, there may be a few people legitimately saved in an NAR church or in Copeland's church, I'm not sure how they could possibly stay there if that's the case, but it's feasible to imagine there are a few saved, but most are not. Just because they go to a so-called Christian church doesn't make them saved. They aren't Christians. They may be dominionists, but they aren't Christian nationalists because they can't be. They aren't Christians. The population doesn't understand this, though, so Christians, ergo, are the enemy. And the fear peddling continues. Heidi also claimed that Trump is going to be pushed to end same-sex marriage, abortion, reducing access to contraception, ending surrogacy, no-fault divorce, and sex education in public schools. And sure, he may have some that will push him on that. But as I said, Trump, until Biden shuffled into the office with his energetic elderly gait, was the most pro-homosexual president this country had ever elected. Regarding abortion, Trump has no problem limiting abortion— But not even to the unreasonable six weeks like that loon in florida did no maybe 15 weeks but not six he scoffs at six make no mistake trump may be considered pro-life but he's not going to end abortion he has absolutely no interest in doing that trump is not going to reduce access to contraception or surrogacy or no-fault divorce these are simply scare tactics of the left Maybe he'd push to stop showing porn to the kids in schools, maybe, maybe push to stop putting absolutely sick, perverse books in the school libraries, maybe even limit the severely mentally and spiritually sick grooming perverts being hired to teach our kids for some reason. And if he does so, good. Those should be bipartisan points of agreement, you know, protecting our children. But they're not. Yet another reason I can't see a Christian being a Democrat. What she's talking about here, in part, are truly Christian ideals, not what Trump has pushed for in the past, or even intimated he would do in the future, not even what he really cares about, as he's not a Christian and doesn't have Christian ideals. No, it's what she and the left hate, including the bulk of the media, the celebrities, the politicians, and their constituents, and a larger percentage of churches and congregants than any of us would like to admit. The thing they hate is Christianity, not religion. They're mostly fine with religion, they hate Christianity, and to be fair, Judaism too, which is why it blows my mind that Jews overwhelmingly vote Democrat for the party that literally wants them exterminated. No, the left has no problem with religion, including Catholicism, and that should tell you something, or at least political Catholicism, which is basically a Catholicism of convenience, you know, to be used when convenient, discarded when it conflicts with political aspirations. American came out with an article in January 2021 lauding the diversity of Biden's cabinet nominees, both in ethnicity and religious beliefs. Remember, the most important thing about you is your intersectionality. That's your skin color, your genitals, the genitals you prefer that your partner has, and how you identify. So his nominees were going to include six African Americans, or I would say black Americans, as I doubt that they all come from Africa, no matter how far back you go, four Hispanics, three Asians, and one Native American. No, not Elizabeth Warren. As for religion, there would be eight Catholics, five Jews, two, quote, black Baptists, two Hindus, and a handful of nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Why is black Baptist a thing, by the way? And sadly, mostly for the black community. I think we both know why that's a thing. But one group not represented that they point out is white evangelicals. Now, isn't that discriminatory? I mean, the percentage of white evangelicals in the United States is greater than zero, so shouldn't they be represented? And no, because white evangelicalism is Trump's domain. Those are His people, they have no place in a Democrat administration, which is actually true. They really shouldn't have anything to do with the Democrats. They point out that Biden attends mass regularly and quotes scripture, but he's not like Obama, who pandered to white evangelicals by inviting Rick Warren, another charlatan in the Christian world, let me point out, to his inaugural invocation and a Pastor Joel Hunter from Florida a man who fashions himself to be an apostle and invited an LGBT group, which claims to be Christian, to hold a conference at his church because Pastor Joel understands that there are gay Christians that want to get close to God. So yeah, white evangelicals, that's, that's how we're represented. Uh, Joel was, uh, was invited as uh, Obama's uh, religious advisor, so, so we had that. At the end of 2020, the ACLU posted a story on their site, headline, The Biden Administration's Religious Freedom To-Do List, Recommitting to Religious Liberty for All. Well, I mean, all is such a funny word. Let's see what they said are on Biden's to-do list in order to get religious freedom back where it needs to be. They start with their premise, of course, quote, Over the last four years, the Trump administration has embraced a distorted view of religious freedom that is rooted in bigotry against minority faiths and atheists and promotes an official preference for Christianity. They've targeted Muslims for no reason other than rank prejudice and favored certain types of Christians in law and policy with no regard for the harms those actions have inflicted on everyone else. Okay, why... I don't remember that, but the ACLU wouldn't lie. So on to the to-do list. Number one, quote, rescind the Muslim ban and affirm that Muslims are a valued part of America's pluralistic religious tapestry. Uh, This, of course, is another leftist lie. It was never a Muslim ban. It was a ban on people from predominantly Muslim countries that wanted to kill Americans and harm the country. It had very little to do with religion, a lot to do with the ideology of terrorism and jihad. Uh, Number two, quote, stop allowing religious exemptions that harm others. Well, apparently Trump used religious freedom to discriminate against others. They say that he gutted, quote, healthcare protections by enacting rules that allow any healthcare worker to refuse care to patients based on the worker's personal religious or moral objections or permit any employers to deny their employees contraception coverage. Now, what they're actually talking about is Healthcare professionals refusing to perform abortions or mutilation of healthy bodies based on the lie of gender dysphoria and the rights of religious institutions, primarily Catholic, ironically, to not have to cover contraception, which they religiously object to. So it's discriminatory to hold a religious belief, but it's not discriminatory to discriminate against those who hold a religious belief. Got it. Number three, recommit to the separation of religion and government. Now he can recommit to that idea as others before him have, but the separation of church and state isn't a thing, I'm afraid to say. I've said multiple times before that this is nothing but a statement in a letter from Thomas Jefferson to a Baptist minister in answer to a state and religion question stating that the government will never interfere with religion, they'll never make a mandatory state or national religion, that there is a wall between church and state, but it's quite obvious reading the letter that that is a one-way wall. The state state needs to keep their noses out of religion. Religion can absolutely be all up in the business of government if it so chooses, and the government has no right to stop it. But because of case law, not law law, case law, this myth of the separation of church and state persists and is used whenever and however convenient. And then a year later, February of 2022, how did Biden do? Well, per AmericanProgress.org, they have, quote, seven ways the Biden administration advanced religious liberty during its first year. Now, you and I both know that this should be good. So so what did he accomplish, this champion for religious freedom and rights? Number one, quote, halting discrimination on the basis of religion in the U.S. immigration system. (laughs) Yay, this is the Muslim ban thing. Number two, quote, expanding civil rights protections on the basis of religion. Number three, quote, resetting federal regulations to respect religious liberty. Number four, quote, structuring the administration's religious affairs functions appropriately with religiously diverse leaders. Number five, quote, protecting sacred lands for indigenous communities. Number six, quote, fighting white supremacist violence and enacting hate crimes legislation. And number seven, quote, advancing international religious freedom as part of the interdependent human rights framework. And let me say that I, for one, feel so much more religiously free since President Potato has shakily taken the reins. Now, Paul told us in Romans, quote, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist have been appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists that authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of that authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid for it does not bear the sword in vain for it is a minister of God an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now admittedly, this is a very puzzling text as there is no way that the Biden administration and many before him are interested in good behavior, especially from a Christian perspective. They're interested in lawlessness, evil, compliance, obedience, and honestly, I'd say worship of the state. The farther down we drill in authority from federal to state to local, the more I could see this text applying to more and more people, but we're not given a caveat to this. Additionally, we don't live in the same kind of political system that Paul lived in. But regardless of the system, regardless of our perception of how good or evil they are, we'd have to assume that the Holy Spirit didn't know about the United States or our political system, and that doesn't fit with Scripture. We could possibly view this from God's ultimate worldview, where all things work together for the good of the called and for God's glory. Although that's true, that's not the context we see here. This is admittedly one of the passages of Scripture that I really struggle with, a lot. From a surface level, for the most part, we can follow the law. That's not a problem. But then we get into areas that are obviously biblically evil, and the gray areas between those two areas that I just don't know how we handle. This is, I think, where the principle of not following laws mandating something the Bible forbids or forbids what the Bible mandates comes in. That's religious freedom, freedom that Christians are not given, freedoms that when called upon are now being called Christian nationalism. We also know that there is a wide gate and a broad road that leads to destruction, and many who travel that road and enter through that gate, but a narrow gate and a constricted way that leads to life, and few who will find that. So although many identify as Christians, including Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi as Catholics, Chelsea Clinton said recently that she left the Baptist church at six years old because She was being talked to about abortion in Sunday school, so she was raised Methodist, and that Hillary, her mom, is, quote, very deeply a person of faith, I'm assuming Satanism. We have Donald Trump, who claims to be a Christian, but has never asked for forgiveness, so he's not, but he's been affirmed by other religious leaders that are known charlatans and wolves that also show no evidence of salvation or biblical knowledge. We have Pete Buttigieg, one of our favorite gay married Christians, who was raised and baptized Catholic, feels more Anglican, but is a member of the Episcopal Church, and so many others. We know that, per the testing in the Bible, these people are clearly not on the constricted way leading to the narrow gate through which we find eternal life. That said, we do need to pray for them. Many of them have very little time left on this earth and very little brain capacity left to understand the importance. And no, I'm not being mean. That's the truth. But if these are the people that whoever consider to be Christian, you can see how those who actually believe in principles found in the Bible, who actually believe the Bible is written and at the same time love their country knowing that the principles, morals, and ethics found in the Bible will prosper a nation, well, you can see how these zealots, in their view, could be considered Christian nationalists. The reality, though, is that the others are really just satanic nationalists. There are only two religions, God and not God, and although Satan is just another created being not equal to God, he's probably the best figurehead to use as a contrast. So we have Satanic Nationalism. Further, we know that as Jesus told us, quote, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. He who hates me hates my Father also. Now, if you love God, if you follow the Bible to the best of your ability, if you believe that all Scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work, you will automatically be hated by the world. Furthermore, if you believe that this country is a great country, if you believe that the Constitution was an inspired document written by inspired men, leaning heavily on the Bible, specifically the law books of the Torah, and you believe that Christian principles and the intent of the law would be beneficial for the United States, not a theocracy, then you're considered a danger to the state. And if you believe that your rights are granted to you by God, not the state, and you believe that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ruler above all rulers— well, then you're a danger. You are a Christian nationalist. Unfortunately, this is where we are and electing Trump won't fix it. Electing Biden, or probably Michelle Obama is who they're gonna use to replace Biden towards the end there, that won't make it notably worse. This is the perception of about half the country right now or more potentially at this point. And only God, only a true revival could change the hearts and minds, open the eyes of the nation. And yet that doesn't absolve us of our responsibility. We are to, first and foremost, worship and serve and obey our God. After that, we are to obey the authorities placed over us, unless they're attempting to force us to violate what God has given us in the Bible, and we are to fight for our nation. This is where our kids, our kids' kids, are going to grow up. We have no excuse to just, you know, let go and let God. This doesn't mean we take up arms. Hopefully, it never comes to that. But I believe that it's a worthy fight given the political system we have, to fight to install men and women who at least honor the spirit of the Christian worldview in order to enact and enforce laws that lead to an increasingly moral society and a society increasingly educated on the value of living in a moralistic country. Now, until then, just be prepared for the world to hate you and to label you as a Christian nationalist because they hated Jesus so it only makes sense that they'll hate us, too. Goal! Update number two for 2024. Hey, welcome to it. OK, I know how this works. You know how this works. Oh, let's just dive in, starting with weight. Ugh. So I was actually up a tick from 206.6 to 207, but that's over four weeks. So obviously, it's been a no progress month, but I really haven't lost a whole lot of ground. I actually made just a little bit of progress then I got sick, and it was one of those sinusy upper respiratory things and just a nagging cough that hung on. So there was about, I don't know, eight, nine, ten days maybe where I didn't work out. And I'm a very, very firm believer and always have been in the old adage of feed a fever, feed a cold. So I did, you know, for strength and healing purposes, and I eventually got better. So I mean, you know, lesson learned, food heals. I'll make sure to file that away for later. Uh, but I found the old, tired horse again. I've climbed atop it, and much to his massive dismay, well, I'm back to working on this. I'll be honest, I just don't want to, right? But, but who really does, right? I mean, people who are psychotic, that's who wants to diet and exercise. So, you can rest easy knowing that your fluffy host is not psychotic. Anyway. If you look at my progress or lack thereof versus my goal, I'm behind the goal by about 4.4 pounds. If I got serious, I could catch that up pretty quickly. As it is, I can probably catch it up slowly. My intention, and I don't want to say hopefully because that really means nothing, so my intention is to have a better report next month. This week will be difficult though. ...as three of my work days will include free lunch... ...as we have some corporate people coming in for audits or whatever. So I either have to partake and then make it up on the backside of the day... ...or I need to decline. I've done both in the past. I can do either this upcoming week. We'll just kind of have to see how it goes. One of the days is Chick-fil-A though. And I'll tell you what, Christian chicken, too tasty. That's the hardest of the three for me to just ignore... Plus, uh, have you noticed the Easter candy, uh, in the store? And, and I mean, there's a few of the, it's Easter candy, right? <clears throat> All right. Anyway, to finish up my shame. My muscle percentage ticked down by a tenth of a percent. My fat percentage ticked up by a tenth of a percent last month. It doesn't really sound like much, and it's not, but that's what those numbers do. It's a tenth of a percent per week or per couple weeks, maybe per month. They're very slow-moving numbers. What does that actually translate into with regard to weight from fat and muscle? Well, muscle weight stayed the same. Fat weight went up by about 0.3 pounds. And I'm pretty sure uh, those manifested in a little bit extra love handles um, and nobody to love them handles. So they really need to go for now. Okay. Next on the list, pages read. This is a win. Changing my daily schedule so that I'm reading during my lunch break is working way better than what I was trying last year. I'm also doing a little bit of random reading at night before I go to sleep, but that, that is really random, right? It just really depends what time i get up in the bed. So I'm up to 1,034 pages read thus far, which adds two more books finished since the last update. One more book finished since my book review update. And actually, I just finished another one on Friday, so the next book review will be on two, possibly three books. Anyway. The 1,034 pages is an additional 569 since the last goal update. I'm currently at 23% of my goal for the year already completed uh, with well over the goal for each week completed. Next, we have Bible reading. Again, modifying the schedule where I'm getting up earlier on the weekdays is working out just really well. Um, I actually look forward to sitting down in a nice kind of quiet time, taking 30 to 45 minutes to just do some Bible reading and studying. I've exceeded my goal of five days per week, uh, all except for one week, and that one I got my five days in. I'm also getting at least one day of in-depth study per week and at least four days of the faster-paced chronological reading. So as of this update, I'm at 123.3% of my goal pace. I'm maybe a week or so ahead of the pace. I set to finish my chronological reading by the end of 2025. I'm in Deuteronomy 5 right now. Um, I'm also in the early part of Job, I believe Job 5, uh, in my in-depth reading. That's the very slow-paced study. Bottom line, everything's going well there. My one struggle is getting lights out by 11 o'clock at night. I'm typically more at 1130, sometimes midnight, which makes getting up at 5 o'clock to do my Bible study harder. Uh, I'm working on it, but getting everything done, including working out in the evening, is tough but overall this is going pretty good Uh, duolingo and learning greek is next well the last update i had just far far exceeded the 70 minutes per week goal but i had mentioned that that would likely drop way back which it has i'm still slightly ahead of my goal every week but as the lessons get harder my time spent in the app is less because the frustration is more But I've been in it at least once every day, so my streak as of this writing is 70 days, and my minutes studying for the year is sitting at 211.6% of goal, which is down from over 350% of my goal in the last goal update. Like I said, it's it's getting to a reasonable amount of time spent uh, little by little. Okay, next goal is prayer. Now, this was one I really struggled with last year as it was just kind of a soft goal. It was something I didn't track. I said I was going to do it, but I didn't track it, which is why I'm formally tracking it now. So, the time I take to actually do a focused prayer is right before bed, uh, usually somewhere in the 25 to 30 minutes range. Um, There are pros and cons to that. But I've been able to stick very close to my goal, sitting at 96.7% of my pace of five nights per week. Um, I had a few weeks that I hit six, a few I hit five, one at four, and one week was only three nights. But in my defense, that was the week I was sick. And there was a period of, I don't know, it was like three, four days that I was just eye-burning, exhausted in the evening. So I just went to bed. But that said, for six weeks tracked thus far, I'm just one day shy of the goal. So I'll take it. Now, I've been using that Prayer Mate app. I mentioned that the last time and I've been adding in requests as I get them or as I think about them and I've got a pretty robust prayer list and the app is really helping to focus my prayers so I'm not just kind of scatterbrained or scattershot trying to pray for everyone and everything every time. If you find yourself just really scatterbrained when you're trying to pray because there's so many things on your mind, I'm telling you, get a good app. The PrayerMate app seems really good, but get a good app and just kind of let it help you focus and organize what you're doing. Finally, my quest to memorize the Book of Romans. Again, if you don't track it, you won't do it so i'm tracking it although this is one that i forget uh, at least a few days per week but that said i'm actually on track and loosely ahead of my goal now i say loosely because even though i'm memorizing verse by verse there are sections that just fit together obviously so rather than memorize a single verse with just a weird break between the verses i'm kind of trying to work with the logical blocks also to be transparent, and I, I know I mentioned this in the last update, I had previously, and this has been a few years, but I had previously memorized up to the first, I don't know, seven, eight, nine verses of Romans chapter three. So the first couple of chapters of Romans should come more easily. It hasn't just come all back perfectly but it should be more easily and in chapter 1 that's kind of what i'm finding so as of today i should uh have chapter 1 verses 1 through 17 memorized which i do but i also have the next chunk which is verses 18 to 23 mostly memorized and like i said those kind of work as a unit so um i had this memorized before but i'm on pace loosely ahead. So if you count that, I'm actually uh, about 17 days ahead of my pace, if you were to count that other block. So I don't know. I'm somewhere between on target and 17 days ahead of target, somewhere in there. Either way, this is going well so far. Now I'd expect that in mid-July, maybe when I have chapter three scheduled to start, that's where I'm going to have, so I'm going to have more trouble. I'm going to have to put a lot more work and focus into trying to memorize it. Uh, but for now, we're good on this one. And there you have it. Weight is the only goal that's really lagging behind. And I had a small excuse for some of that lag, but only a small one and only for some. I should have done better. I'm working on it now. <sighs> Next goal update will be better. Closing in on my goal pace. So let me say this in closing. If you're not getting into your Bible regularly and if you're not focused in prayer regularly, boy, you know, I highly recommend it. I, I know it's not about feeling, But the feeling I have with regard to my relationship with God is just night and day different than it's been for a while. It's like most of the rest of my goals. You know, It's just simply what I know I'm supposed to do, what I need to do. I know that it will have great benefits for me, but it's a goal right now because it's easy to just ignore and then excuse my way out of. So I'm at a point now, six or so weeks in, where if I miss it, If I don't get up and get in the Bible, then I don't feel complete, right? And if I haven't taken time and focused prayer, well, I feel like I haven't ended my day. And I like the fact that I don't like it if I've neglected my relationship with God and my Savior. My prayer is that this feeling, this drive, just continues to grow. Okay, so that should do it. As always, if you have any questions or comments, ideas, tips or tricks or whatever, just let me know. If you want to tell me what your goals are for the year and how you're doing, that's great too. If you haven't set any goals for the year, it's not too late. You can start setting and working on goals anytime, right? I mean, the key is to make the goal and start tracking. Striving toward a goal is how you drive change and improvement in your life. Okay, goal update number two, 2024 edition in the books. So that only leaves... Okay, bye! And with that, sadly, we've reached the end of yet another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. I feel we've bonded as we've laughed and cried and twisted our faces in incredulity. If you've enjoyed or found value in what you've heard, go on and do all the podcast things. And don't forget to check the show notes for links and contact info. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.